Well, if you have your Bible, look with me at Luke 22, beginning now at verse one. I'll read down to verse 23. Now, the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat of it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare the prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table. And the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this. And share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. After they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the son of man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Amen. 
Some of you may have seen the movie 1917 that came out uh, this uh, winter. It's about World War One. And one of the cinematic features to this film, according to critics, is that it had what they call a continuous shot, meaning the movie was shot from the perspective of the protagonist and you follow the protagonist through the entirety of the movie. That is, there was no change of scenes. Most movies have change of scenes. Maybe they'll even have a a flashback where the protagonist flashes back to something earlier in their life, but it relates to the present. And uh, directors will often do that. They're changing scenes. And I want us to think about the Passover today in three scenes. This is not a continuous shot that we have before us, but we have three distinct scenes about the Passover that I want to give to you. Number one, from verses one through six, I'm going to entitle this scene preparing to betray, preparing to betray verses one through six. The second scene that Luke then gives us is in verse seven through verse 13. And that one I'm entitling preparing for the Passover, preparing for the Passover And then the last scene is verse 14 to 23. This is where they're in the upper room. And I'm entitling this one preparing to die, preparing to die. So preparing to betray verses one through six, preparing for the Passover verses seven to 13 and then verses 14 to 23, preparing to die. Now, look with me at our text. The first scene of this Passover movie is in verses one through six, and it focuses on the, shall we say, the antagonist of Judas. Judas is preparing to betray the Savior. Note here that Luke tells us that this is occurring on the first day of unleavened bread. Remember that there are three ceremonial uh, holidays that the Jews must observe annually. And this is one of them. Passover would be one of the big three. So they, they would go. This would be along with, with the Pentecost and the Feast of Booze. There are the other two. So you have the Passover here. Now, on the first day of the Passover week is when the actual Passover is to be sacrificed. Now, the significance of the Passover, of course, goes back all the way to Exodus chapter 12. What happens in Exodus 12 is where the children of Israel, you'll remember, by the grace of God, are set free from their captivity to slavery. God, by a strong right arm, delivers the children out of Egypt by parting miraculously the Red Sea and that the ground upon which they walk with the ocean on their left and the ocean on their right. A great wall of water to their left and to their right. And yet, miraculously, they are walking not on mud, but on dry ground. And Moses leads the nation of Israel, men, women and children, elderly, everybody through that great Red Sea. Prior to that, they celebrated the last of that miracle in Egypt before they left, before they went through that Red Sea. And that was this. They were to 
sacrifice a lamb. And you remember this story, boys and girls? Each family, according to their size, was to sacrifice a lamb and they were to put the blood of that lamb. What today we would call the door jam or the lentil of the door. That is the the side, the, the, the wood that is to the side of one side of the door, the wood on the other side of the door and then the top part as well. So they were to put the blood all the way around the sides of the door and wherever the Lord saw the blood. Now, remember, the significance of that is that the blood points to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Passover lamb is significant because it is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. It's a type of what Jesus does for us on the cross by his blood. By his blood, we are spared the wrath and the judgment of God. So wherever God saw the blood on the door jam, the lentil of the door of the children of Israel, he would pass over. He would skip over. God came through Egypt in judgment. And wherever he did not see the blood applied to that house, he would bring forth a judgment of death upon the firstborn. How many of you are firstborn? I know I am. And had we been living and had we been an Egyptian, that would have been it. There would have been two of us gone in my family, my mother and me. But wherever the blood was, they were safe. Prefiguring the work of Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of the Corinthians that Christ now is our Passover. That Jesus, to put it in the language of John the Baptist, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, when John was preaching Christ as the Lamb of God, that was a word that was pregnant with theological meaning to the Jews. Because they knew that their redemption was tied to the death of a lamb. They knew that they were saved from the wrath of God by the shedding of the lamb's blood. And so this is very significant when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he sees Christ and he says, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Every Jew should have understood the significance of that from their Old Testament Bible. So they are here as a nation celebrating the Passover as they did every year as a nation. It was required in the law of God that all the males of Israel and many of them brought their family, the whole family. But it was required of all the males to make an appearance in Jerusalem on this time. It also shows how God protected his nation. Can you imagine? Everybody's gone in the whole land of Israel and they're all in Jerusalem. And and they and it shows that God, if they would, they had to exercise faith to do this, to trust in God, that their enemies wouldn't overrun them while they're doing this. And then on the on, at twilight, as the sun goes down on the first night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would take the lambs and they would all at the same time begin to slaughter those lambs. Now, scholars and commentators tell us the blood shed from that one event. Hundreds of thousands, if not a million lambs being shed. The blood was tremendous. They said that the river Kidron or Kidron, depending how you pronounce it, the river that ran through Jerusalem would turn red. There was so much shedding of blood. 
that it was everywhere in Jerusalem. Now, the Passover feast is coming up, and yet what do we find? We find that the powers of darkness are at work. As Christ approaches the climax of his ministry, we read in verse 3, And Satan entered into Judas. Judas, of course, was one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He was one of the twelve. He was chosen by Jesus to be one of those who would spread the gospel throughout the world. But Judas had not a heart to follow Christ. We get hints of this in a couple of occasions For example, one was that we get a hint. You'll remember earlier we saw that Judas was stealing secretly from the treasury. And so we know that he was in a lifestyle of sin. We also know that he was probably the critic who was complaining when the oil was poured out, the expensive nard that was poured out on Christ preparing him for his burial. So he was a covetous man a man of the world, and he probably had become disillusioned with the idea of Jesus dying for the sins of his nation. Judas, I think, expected a kingdom that was of this world, a kingdom that would have meant power for him, a kingdom that would have meant not taking up your cross and suffering with Christ, not a kingdom that is a spiritual kingdom. Judas wanted a kingdom that would make him wealthy. Judas wanted a kingdom that was of this world. Judas wanted the kingdom that Satan was offering Jesus in the temptations. Remember when Satan, boys and girls, told Jesus, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. All these kingdoms, all these nations that are sitting in darkness are ruled by me. And I'll give them to you if you'll what? If you'll just simply bow down. And Jesus, of course, said, you shall worship no other God but God alone. And Jesus would not bow down. But here's Judas. What's Judas doing? He's bowing down. Judas is taking up what Jesus refused. And Judas is saying, I'll bow down. And Satan enters him. Now, I know sometimes this causes distress to people because they want to know, could Satan enter into me? Could Satan enter into me? Could a demon take possession of my soul and lead me? To betray the Lord. And I think here the answer to that is if you are in Christ, no. If you belong to Christ, the spirit of God dwells within you and therefore you are protected from demons. Now, demons may attack you, but their attack is external. They may shoot fiery darts at you, but they cannot own you. They cannot take hold of you. You are in possession of the of, of the Lord. The Lord has possession of you, maybe I should say. And, and the spirit of God dwells within you. And he who dwells in you, we are told, is greater than he who is in the world, namely Satan. So if if you are worried about demonic possession, then my answer to you, Pastor Oli, would be go to Christ and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you'll have Christ dwelling within you because the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Christ. 
The spirit of Christ will dwell within you and therefore you will not be given over to demonic possession. But if you refuse Christ, then I cannot make any I cannot make any guarantees for you. If you if you continue to resist the Holy Spirit and his offers to come to Christ, if you continue to refuse the invitations of the gospel, if you continue to reject Christ, I cannot guarantee that the door of the gospel is remaining open for you. It is incumbent upon not just for your own soul, but for the souls of your family to go to Christ. Remember, Paul said to the Philippian jailer, you know, when he said, what must I do to be saved? There was a great earthquake. He's afraid. He goes, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say, and you will be saved. He says, you and your family will be saved. That is, the gospel offers protection, not just for us individually in Christ, but offers covenantal protection for our family. That the, Remember, the blood of Christ was applied at the Passover by the head of the house, but the whole house was protected, wasn't it? And so the, the, the offer of salvation is not just for us individually, but for us and our children after us. And for all who are far off and are called by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our children must grow up and, and profess and own Christ themselves, too. As they mature they, in the covenant, they must lay hold of the promises of Christ for themselves. They must not refuse the covenant. They must not be like Esau and sell their birthright. But the promise is for us and the household. And so I think not only do you protect yourself from Satan uh, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but your, your family is protected, too. This is one of the reasons we believe in baptism. If you if you care for the souls of your children, we don't believe that baptism regenerates our children as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. But what we are saying is that our children belong to Christ. They, they are Christ and we will raise them as disciples. They're not pagans. Waiting to be evangelized. They're disciples of Christ. We're rearing them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. They're, they are in visible union with Christ. Now you have to own that children for yourself. Uh, you, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that as a young child. I, I don't think there, there, there's anything that hinders a young child from honestly and earnestly believing in Christ. You can be three years old, four years old. And... and and yes, they may have the faith of a child, but that faith of a child is, when it is rooted by the work of the Holy Spirit, is, is genuine faith. Remember, we're not saved by the size of our faith. You're saved because Christ is the object of your faith. So even if your faith is small, that small faith is anchored to Christ. It's Christ who saves you. This is why... New believers and, and young children can genuinely be united to Christ. So what must you do? Let me urge you, especially you who are heads of homes, that you make sure you're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that Christ is your life, that Jesus is the beginning and the end of your life. He's the alpha and the omega. And that all these other things be added unto you.
But Judas did not do that. Judas became disillusioned. Judas wanted God for what he thought God would give him. A nice life with good things materially. Judas, Judas wanted the trappings of power. He wanted, he wanted that, that Christ who would provide fish and loaves every day so they didn't have to do anything. He didn't want a Christ who said, take up your cross and follow me. And Judas became disillusioned and his, he became bitter. And, and the Bible says, watch out. If you have a root of bitterness in you, watch out. You're opening the door for satanic attack. And Judas, I think it's safe to say, was bitter. Disillusioned. And because of that, he was willing to betray Jesus. And Satan, being clever and knowing our weaknesses, knew that he was a lover of money because he stole from the treasury. And Satan knew he stole from the treasury, stole from the church. He knew all it would take, 30 silver pieces. And Judas would bite. And so they offer him 30 silver pieces. And Judas begins his betrayal of the Savior. So that's scene number one, preparing to betray. Now, Luke then shifts the camera to a new scene. And this is in verse 7 to 13, which I've entitled preparing for the Passover, preparing for the Passover. If you have your Bibles with you, look again at verse seven. Notice here it's a it's a new paragraph. And Luke says, then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us. So Judas has already left. Judas has gone to seek out the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus. And now they're down to 11 and Jesus takes out of that 11, two of them, while he and the other nine Remain behind. So Peter and John, he says, I want you to go into Jerusalem and I want you to prepare the Passover. And of course, Peter and John are saying, you know, Lord, where where do you want us to prepare the Passover? We didn't make any reservations. You know, what what, what are we going to do? And so um, he says, this is what you want. You want to do now. I think this is a miracle. Your, Your your liberals in your liberal churches, they have an explanation for all this. They say, oh, no, no, no. Jesus knew the guy who owned the house and he had somehow secretly prearranged it with this guy. And and so Jesus, when he told them uh, to, to do this, that it was not a miracle. They want No, it's a miracle. This is a miracle. Let me let me get explain it for you here. Let me. Can I use the word set the table? Um, here's what he says. Peter and John go in the city. Now, the city is packed. OK, I mean, think about some. Outdoor, I'm dating myself, you know, huge concert, Beach Boys on the 4th of July. You know, remember how they used to do that on the mall in Washington? You know, the whole mall. Okay, so Jesus says, go to Jerusalem. There are people everywhere. And and he says, and you'll see a guy carrying a pitcher of water. (laughs) Look, just show up in Jerusalem among the thousands, the tens of thousands of people, and look for a guy who's got a water jar. So it's like going through Hartsfield Airport at Christmas. 
And you are walking around. And this actually, I actually once had to do that. I had to find a friend. This is before cell phones. We got separated on Thanksgiving Day, you know, before Thanksgiving. He jumped onto the train of, you know, the train that takes you from concourse to concourse. And the doors closed before I could get on the train. And we had to find each other. So anyway, he, he says, go into the city among these tens of thousands of people and look for a guy who's got a big water jar and follow him. So not only do you have to look for a guy with a water jar, then you've got to stalk him. <laughs> because the guy with the water jar doesn't know they're looking for him. He's just carrying the water jar to the house. So then they got to kind of, you know, play detective, play CIA and start following this guy. And when he gets into the house, then you say and ask the master of the house, where's the room for the Passover for our Lord? And he'll show you a large furnished upper room. Now, friends, Jesus here is demonstrating his prophetic ministry like Elijah and like Elisha from the Old Testament. Jesus could tell them, look for a guy because God would orchestrate it so that they would run into a guy carrying a large water pitcher. Who would go to the house that would have this upper room and this is a large upper room. Remember, this is the room where the New Testament, the New Covenant Church is about to be birthed. 50 days from now, because remember, this is where the 120 people are praying when the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter two. Y'all remember that? So this is a big room. This is a big this is this is the first church building of the new covenant church. And, and Jesus says, follow this guy. And when you get in, ask the guy who owns the place where they are to go. To prepare. Now, as I said, I think this is a sign of Jesus's prophetic power. He's showing himself to be in the long line of prophets of the Old Testament. And and we also see that this is where the Lord's Supper is to be instituted. This upper room is going to be significant. This place is going to be significant because not only is the Passover to be celebrated in this upper room, and not only will it be the future sanctuary for the church when the Holy Spirit is poured out. But this is the place where what we do every Sunday, Sunday by Sunday, is going to be instituted for the first time. This is where Jesus will say, this is my body is broken for you. This is the cup of my blood in the new covenant that is shed for you. And so this is of great significance. And this is this is not a coincidence. And this was not somehow just prearranged by Jesus by which there's some kind of natural explanation. This was a miracle of Jesus yet again. Now, that brings us then to the third scene. And of course, the third scene is the most important. These first two scenes were just building. Luke introduces the tension in the first scene, right? With the betrayal. Then he sets it up with the second scene, getting to the upper room. And now comes Really, I think the focal point of of this part of the story by Luke, and that is found in verses 14 to 23. And I want to talk about this and make some applications. And this is where in verses 14 to 23, I'm calling it preparing to die, preparing to die. We had the preparation for betrayal, the preparation of the Passover 
and now preparing to die, the preparation to die. And by that, boys and girls, what I'm talking about is Jesus is the one who's preparing to die here. Now, look with me at verse uh, 14, please. When the hour had come, he that is Jesus, that pronoun refers to Jesus. He reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Now, you remember, they, they, they tend to lie down. The tables are low. They tend to kind of recline. It's not like we do as we sit. So they're reclining around this table. They're in a great and furnished room, beautiful room. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it, eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Put your finger there for a moment. And then he goes on and he said, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I well, let's just stop there. What is Jesus doing here? They're lying around. They've begun to eat the Passover. The Passover, again, prefigures the work which Christ is about to do. And then Christ does something very interesting here. And if you're not carefully and slowly reading through this portion of this chapter, you might miss it and you might misunderstand what's going on here. Here they are. They've begun the meal. And Jesus has explained to them that this is the last Passover he's ever going to take until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, I think that fulfillment is not just inaugurally fulfilled in his death, but I think it means even in the consummation. When we sit down at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what, what is called the, 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 the Lamb's Supper by John the Apostle in the book of Revelation. Jesus is set, what Jesus here is doing is doing something very interesting. He's telling him his his ministry is coming to a close and a climax, at least his earthly ministry. At, and there's a connection between what they're doing at the Passover and what he is about to do as the savior of the world. Now, what I said is interesting is that here at the beginning of the meal, he takes the cup and he tells the disciples here, drink this cup. Look with me at verse 17 again. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Now, if you're not careful, you might think, oh, I know what that cup is. That's the cup of the Lord's Supper. Nope. You're getting ahead of yourself. Jesus hasn't even broken the bread yet and said, this is my body. The cup of the Lord's Supper comes down in verse 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten. That's the institution of the cup at the Lord's Supper. So why is Jesus taking this cup full of wine and giving it to his disciples to drink of this cup? What is, what's the significance of that if it's not the cup of the Lord's Supper? Well, I think the answer to that is found in what Jesus says when he gives it to his disciples to drink. Verse 17, he says, take this and share it among yourselves. And I think the key to understanding what's going on here is verse 18. He says, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is not instituting the Lord's Supper right at this moment. He's going to. At the end of the meal, 
But we're still in the midst of the meal. We're at the beginning of the meal. Jesus is showing the disciples something they need to understand theologically. Jesus is beginning. Why did what did Jesus say? Jesus, let me put it this way. Jesus said, I really longed to eat of this meal with you. And one of the reasons he longed to do this, this is the last time he's going to have close communion and fellowship with his disciples. And Jesus is beginning, even here in the upper room, to enter into the isolation and the desolation of the cross. Jesus takes the wine. Now, what is the wine significant? What's the significance of the wine? The wine is significant because the Old Testament says that it was one of the signs of God's covenantal blessings to the nation of Israel. And Jesus says, I'm not going to drink this any longer until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I want you to drink it. I want you to pass it around to each of you and drink of it because it's going to be a blessing. God is giving his covenantal blessings to you. The fruit of the vine is kind of like the, the phrase, you know, the milk and honey. Or each man sitting under his fig tree. The Old Testament has these little ways of describing God's blessing to Israel. Each man sitting under his fig tree, the land flowing with milk and honey, the cup of the vine. And Jesus says, I'm not going to drink this blessing from God, but I want you to drink it. Because why? Because Jesus is beginning to enter into his isolation. Jesus is communicating theologically to his disciples that the blessings of God are slowly being removed from him. He is showing his disciples he is the one who is going to have the blessings of God removed He is entering into his desolation. And as you move through Luke here, you see that desolation increasing as you get closer and closer to the cross. And this is just the beginning because we're going to see it when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's there with his three disciples and even there they fall asleep on him and he's alone with God. And yet here's the connection. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to drink of this cup, which symbolizes the blessings of God, because God has another cup for me to drink of. And he's going to tell us what that cup is in the garden. Because the cup that is going into the hand of Christ will not be the cup of blessing. It will be the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. That Jesus is saying to his disciples, you need to understand you are getting the blessings, but I'm about to drink of the curse. I am about to substitute myself for you like those lambs that were slaughtered at twilight were a sign of substitution for the sinners who ate of that lamb and whose blood was put on the doorpost to save you from the wrath of God. I can't drink of the cup of God's blessings anymore in this world. But I give it to you to drink of it. Because I'm going to offer myself for you. I'm going to drink some wine, but it'll be the wine of desolation. And I will go into the Garden of Gethsemane and I'll say, Father, if there be any other way to secure the salvation of your people, oh, God, let this cup pass. 
But not my will, Lord, but thine be done. And Jesus says essentially in the garden three times to his father because we're told he prays that prayer three times over. Father, everything in my perfect human nature does not want to receive this cup, but I do receive it because it's your will. And I take this cup not because I'm an unwilling sacrifice, because you and I in eternity past made a covenant of redemption. And we both agreed, even before the creation of the world, that I would be the sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. And now, Father, I take this cup that you give me in the garden. And I do take this cup and I drink it down to its very last drop. I will go to the cross and I will wear the sin and the shame of your people. And I there crucified between two thieves will take and drink all of your judgment, all of your justice, all of your wrath, all of your condemnation. So that these my disciples may have the cup of your blessing of wine. You see what Jesus is doing? We haven't even gotten to the Lord's Supper yet. And Jesus is saying here, I'm beginning to show you what I'm about to do. I longed to have this meal with you, but even even as much as I long to have this meal, I can't partake of it fully because now I'm entering into a a new phase, if you will, of my ministry. I'm going to a place where you cannot go with me. I'm going to a place where no man could go. For all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it would have to be a perfect man. It would have to be a man who is truly man and yet also the very son of God, very God of God. God and man in one person. Only this second Adam could be such a sacrifice for sinners. And so Jesus here then Having given this cup to the disciples and they drink of it, then they do what? Then Luke tells us they get to the end of the meal. And this is where the institution of the Lord's Supper is inaugurated. And almost to again demonstrate what he said at the beginning of the meal. Now he makes it even clearer. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body. Just as you would eat of that Passover lamb, now I, the lamb of God, am giving you my flesh. And that he who would follow me must eat my flesh and drink of my blood. Not in a corporal and carnal manner as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. We're not re-sacrificing Christ over again and again and again when we serve the Lord's Supper. But we are commemorating Even as the Passover commemorated the great redemption of the children of Israel from Egypt, we at the Lord's Supper, we are commemorating the death of our Savior for us. And we take of the bread and we say, Lord Jesus, you died for me. You were broken for me. You were broken under my sin and the curse of the consequences of that sin, the wrath and judgment of God. And Lord Jesus, by faith, I truly eat of you. I eat of you. I commune with you. I commune with your works. Your works are now my works by faith. And in the same way, the cup comes around. Jesus said here in verse 20, he took of the cup. And after having eaten the cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I'm entering into a new covenant. And this new covenant is the fulfillment of all the old covenants. That God had made in the Old Testament with his people. Oh, this is the fulfillment of the covenant 
that God made with Noah. This is how you get peace with God from the wrath of God. Oh, Noah, look to Christ in the new covenant. This Abraham is how you will become the father of every tribe, tongue and nation. It is through your descendant, Jesus Christ, by which billions of people one day will come to faith and you will be the father of them all. Because the Apostle Paul says that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is a child of Abraham. This Moses This is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with you, Moses, when God came down in a terrible cloud with lightning and thunder and earthquake and gave his moral law to us. Only Jesus could fulfill that moral law and die for the consequences of that law. This is the covenant, David, that this is the fulfillment of the covenant, David, that was made with you when God said, I will cause one of your seed to sit upon my throne forever. And Jesus is saying, now I, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, and the fulfillment of all those promises, all those covenants that God formally made with his people. Now I, I make, I give you my blood, the blood of this new covenant. It is not new in the sense that it dispenses with the old. It's new in the sense that it fulfills the old. And I, he says, I want you to take of it. What do you do to take of it? You must come by faith. If, if you want the blessings of Christ, the blessings of the significance of the broken bread and the, and the cup of wine, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the, the good news is that Christ says, I want you to come. I freely offer myself, my life, my death, my resurrection for you. And that if you will but believe upon me, I will give you everlasting life. I'm not a hard man. These are easy terms. Repent of your sins. Trust in me. Believe on me. Put your weight on me. Hope in me. Make me your beginning and your end. And I will give you life. I am faithful. I am good. Christ invites all of you here today. Young, old, visitor, member, whoever. To come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to put... Christ in you. I'm standing here in Christ's stead, preaching his word. I'm just simply his messenger, his ambassador. But I have the authority by Christ to make this offer to you. That if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you'll be saved. And I can offer that sincerely to you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is. If you'll really embrace Christ by faith, if you'll look to him and trust him and love him, he will he will give himself to you. He will save you from your sins, though they be many, they will be gone. Though they your life be stained with sins as crimson, they shall be white as snow. Christ offers himself to sinners. He loves sinners. He's merciful to sinners. God did not come. Christ did not come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. And he calls us. He calls us not to come as Presbyterians, not to come as Baptists, not to come as righteous people, to come as sinners unto him. All you need to do is believe. All you need to do is trust him. Look to him. Call upon him in prayer. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to sign a card or raise a hand, but even right where you are, you can believe on Jesus Christ. 
And even as we close in prayer, you can say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. Lord, I trust in you. Save me from my sins. And he being faithful will. Let's pray together.